0: Good evening. Good evening. I remember back in my high school days, someone or somebody, a group of people, would call in bomb threats to the high school that I attended. Um, usually, what would happen is they, you know, they would call it in, and so all the students would be escorted out onto the football field where we'd have to spend you know hours upon hours waiting until the police would come in and search the building. Uh, you know, bring the dog in, that type of thing. Uh, but sometimes even they would let us go home early. Uh, but I remember uh, one time, uh, you know, it made the news. It happened so frequently this one year uh, within this week or uh, two-week period of time that the news uh, got wind of it, and they came in and did a story on it. And so, of course, what usually happens is when, uh, you know, other um, people start to hear this uh, copycat uh, threats would go out and so the schools around the area would start to have them as well. You know, and in situations like these, uh, you know, those in charge, you know, they have to make a decision and have to ask themselves, do they really want to draw attention to it? You know, and I say that this this evening because, you know, I don't uh, particularly enjoy preaching lessons on the devil. And I'm sure that you probably don't as well enjoy hearing them, but I, you know, I ask myself, do I really want to give attention to him, give him the spotlight? And absolutely not. But we are warned throughout Scripture, over and over again, of how cunning and crafty uh, he is. You know, First Peter chapter five verse eight says that he is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In Ephesians chapter six, verse eleven, he said, Paul says there that we need to be aware of the schemes of the devil. You know, we put on the full armor of God so that we can uh, fight off the schemes of the devil. And that word "schemes," uh, if you look at that in the original language, uh, it, it translates to the word "methods." You know uh, that he is methodical. Satan has his methods, and of course, First John chapter three, verse eight tells us that one of the reasons that Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. And the devil is pictured throughout Scripture as a desirous creature. He has wanted things, and sometimes he has gotten them. Uh, We can recall all the way back into Genesis chapter 3 with Eve in the garden and the devil satan he desired to bring sin into the world and he got his wish then we recall in job chapter 1 and 2 where where the devil uh, is presented before a god and he wants to prove god wrong uh, about this man job the uh, job uh, wouldn't just uh, serve God for nothing, uh, the devil would say. And so he, he attempted to, to prove God wrong. In John chapter 8, verse 44, and I'll mention this verse a couple of times this evening. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and to the Jews around them. The Jews that are around him, uh, they're not necessarily in agreement with the things that Jesus is saying. In verse 44, Jesus says to those Jews in particular, "'You are of your father, the devil.'" And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, and he is a liar and the father of lies. You know, and I preached a lesson a few months ago on the temptations of Jesus, and you remember in Matthew chapter 4, verse 9. Uh, the devil took Jesus upon that high mountain and he showed them all of the kingdoms of the earth and said, if you just would bow down and worship me, you can have these. Uh, the, the devil is a desirous creature. And when we get right down to it, the devil desires really uh, they fall into these three categories. And we're just going to quickly speak about these categories here tonight that he wants to keep the unsaved unsaved. Uh, not only that, but those who have obeyed the gospel, he wants to bring them back into the world. And finally, maybe he can't get to those. Uh, and, and necessarily, he wants to render those within the church worthless. So, so let's notice some of these uh, first to keep the unsaved unsaved. In Second Thessalonians chapter one, you know we're studying the Book of Thessalonians uh, in our morning Bible class, uh, but in Second Thessalonians in particular. You know Paul is writing to this church this very young church and and this is the second letter second inspired letter that he sends to this congregation there, and he is encouraging them. they are being persecuted there's persecution going on within this this city as as we know the jews they they formed this mob and they chased. Paul and Timothy and Silas out of Thessalonica and because of that they had to run to Berea and those Jews if you remember they came and followed him all the way to Berea and chased him even further but even in Thessalonica a man who was converted by the name of Jason he was dragged from his house and so again there's much persecution going on within this community for the Christians there. Uh, notice with me in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 6, that Paul is speaking about this affliction going on. And he says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. You know, you might think when, when Paul is writing to these Christians here that he might bring up uh, the Jews that were persecuting them and sending them you know, out of the city. But notice specifically here in verse 8 that he mentions two groups. He mentions those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And when you boil it down, those two groups are what make up the unsaved. And the devil wants to keep people out of the Lord's church. Well why? We have Romans chapter six, verse sixteen tells us that you know basically everybody is a slave or a servant to someone. We're either a slave servant to righteousness, or we're a slave servant to sin. And of course that's what Satan wants. That's what the devil wants, is us to be a slave to sin. You know, misery loves company. He's defeated, and he wants everyone else to be defeated with him. Everyone that he can bring with him is a slap in the face of the Almighty God. We're told in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, that there is a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, he has been defeated. That's where he will be. Not a place for him to rule, but a place that he will be tormented as well. And so Satan's influence within Scripture is seen outside of the church, uh, in the world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, refers to him as the prince of the power of the air. John chapter 12, verse 31, he's referred to as the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he is the God of this world. Now, God spelled with a lowercase G. He is the God of this world. In James chapter 4, verse 4, James tells us that whoever wishes to be a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. And so he does this by using his tools. Uh, the tools, the methods that he have. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, we notice. Uh, the lusts of the flesh, uh, the lusts of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Right? If we boil it down, those are those three groups uh, that, that Satan uses in his toolbox because sin is attractive. It's pleasurable to individuals. By, uh, but by staying out of the church, individuals are pleasing the devil. Uh, they are granting his desires. You know, the devil will do us no good in this life. And what does he desire? Well, again, John chapter 8, verse 44. I want to read this one more time to you. John chapter 8, verse 44. Notice, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Notice that. There is no truth in him. It's his nature to lie. He is the father of lies. And so throughout scripture, if it's essential for, uh, you know, if it's not essential for people to be in the church, why does he desire to keep them out? You know, in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus tells Peter and the other apostles there that Satan demanded permission. He demanded permission from him to sift them like wheat. He wanted to uh, torment them as much as possible. And Paul in Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, when he's speaking of the, his thorn in the flesh and whatever that may be, a lot of people think it, it was a, you know, a vision problem that he had. But Paul said that it was a messenger of Satan to torment him. Again, Satan sending those things to him. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18, he said that Satan hindered Paul multiple times to return to Thessalonica. Right? Satan is scheming. Uh, he was doing things to keep Paul from um, helping others in, in that area. Uh, we Remember uh, this man by the name of Demas that we, we recall three times within the New Testament. In Colossians chapter 4 and Philemon, uh, we notice that he is a worker for the Lord. He, he's working with Paul on some of his uh, journeys with other congregations. He's doing a good work. But by the time Paul writes 2 Timothy um, chapter 4 verse 10, we're told that Demas having loved this present world. Right, uh, Satan got to Demas. He got to Demas. And so again, we ask the question: if it's not essential for people to be in the church, then why does the devil desire to keep them out? So again, Satan is scheming, doing whatever he can to make the church look unattractive to people, to look hypocritical to people, to look unvaluable. But as we read in John chapter 8, verse 44, we can't fall for the father of lies. We can't fall uh, for this, because this is his nature. It's his nature to turn uh, those things around and look, make them look undesirable. So the first category we notice is that uh, he desires to keep the unsaved unsaved. Next, we want to notice that he desires to get the saved back. You know, if you uh, are in the church and the devil desires to get you back into the world. Uh, we often think baptism is the end game in the Christian's life. You know, a lot of times that we, we we want to see people uh, be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And they begin their Christian life there. But then we maybe, um, you know, not pay as much attention uh, to them anymore. and And so... But that, of course, that's just the beginning of their life, of their journey as a new creature in Christ. And if there's any better time for Satan to strike, it's right then, at the beginning of your new walk in Christ, your new life in Christ, when you are a babe in Christ. When we think of the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, we're reminded of those four different soils, those four different scenarios of the heart. And three of them, we know, eventually fail. But initially, three of them were receptive. And sometimes we don't think about that fact. Again, in Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 3, the sower went out to sow. And he, he sowed some seed uh, beside the road. But we're told that the birds of the air came and swooped them up and, and devoured them. And some of the seed fell on the rocky soil. But because it did not have depth and soil, because uh, there was these intrusions in the soil, it could take no root. It couldn't survive. When the the sun came, it scorched it out. It couldn't get moisture. Some of that seed was planted on the thorny soil. But, of course, they were choked out when they tried to grow up with with the the, uh, other uh, weeds around it. But some of that seed fell on good soil. Well, the disciples wanted to know, what does this mean? And so they asked Jesus, what does it mean? And he goes on to explain to them later on in verses 18 through 23 that the seed represents the word of God. And so this sower is sowing the seed. He's sowing the word of God into people's hearts. And those that fall along the road, we're told, the evil one snatches away what has been sown in their heart. The devil comes in and he snatches that away. Matter of fact, in Mark's account, in Mark chapter 4, verse 15, he says he immediately comes and takes away the word of God from the heart. And then we're told that the, the seed that falls on the rocky soil, uh, these are temporary successes, uh, but after persecution, they, 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 fail, they fall away. All right? We can't firmly root ourselves into the soil, and so when persecution arises, when things uh, get a little tough, those individuals um, succumb to the rocky soil. And then Jesus tells them that those, that seed that's planted on thorny soils, uh, they have to compete with the things of the world. The worries of this life, the the deceit of wealth, it it chokes them out. But the good soil, the good soil, when the word of God falls on the good soil, it bears much fruit, up to a hundred times as much. Well, how can Satan prevent this fruit? we read again that he takes it away as soon as possible as soon as it hits the soil before it can penetrate the soil he wants us to be rootless so he uses persecution hindrances fears he exaggerates the downside of becoming a christian and minimizes the upside and uh, but also he wants us to be choked out he wants the cares of this world to take over our thoughts and our minds and our hearts Uh, The deceitfulness of riches, those types of things to fill our hearts rather than the word of God. Well what's different about the good soil? The good soil, when they hear the word, they get it. Matthew's account tells us that they understand it, right? It's as if I'm saying, I get it, I understand it. Mark's account says they accept it. You know, uh, I love it. I get it and I love it. And Luke's account of this a parable says that he keeps it. Not only do I get it, I love it, and I'm going to do it. And even though one may accept the gospel, friends, Satan is not done working. As in the parable, he attacks the soil of the heart. And so we need to be mindful of this and the threat of our newly born brothers and sisters in Christ. That Satan is going to work immediately to work on the soil of our hearts, Whether he's going to put intrusions in the way, like the rocky soil, or he's going to get uh, some other things to help choke that out. And we need to help cultivate their hearts so that Satan cannot get his desires to get the saved back. And then finally this evening, one more, to render the saved worthless. That's another desire of Satan. See, maybe he can't convince you to leave the church. Maybe he can't convince you to compromise the scriptures. But if you're in the church, the devil desires to render you worthless in it. He's willing to compromise and let those pretend uh, that they are still loyal to Jesus. And the devil desires to get those in the church to be inactive, to be grumblers, to forsake the assembly, to be stingy and careless. And, and the bottom line is to be indifferent, to be indifferent to the church. A preacher was once asked, you know, who do you think is the hardest in the world is? is to uh, reach the gospel. And he asked, is it the atheist who outright rejects God? And he says no. And then he asked them, well, maybe it's someone who's steeped in religious error. And again, he said no. And he said, well, maybe it's the agnostic. You know, the person that that thinks maybe there is a God, but maybe there isn't. We just really can't know. And again, the preacher said no. He said no, but I believe that the most difficult person to convert is the self-righteous the lukewarm follower of Jesus, uh, those whose Christianity is only skin deep. And so we want to turn to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22 to see this point. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, uh, the Apostle John is writing to seven churches of Asia. He's writing to these seven churches, and he, he has a message for each one of them. Let's read Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 and 22, and get the, the gist of this letter that's going to the church here in Laodicea. It reads, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. The eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church in Laodicea. Laodicea was an important area. Uh, it was a center of trade and commerce. They were a very wealthy uh, congregation. Uh, matter of fact, it's said within history that in AD 60, an earthquake destroyed the city and they were able to rebuild it. By their own self-support. They didn't need to reach out to the Roman government or anyone else. They were so rich. Because again, this was a center for trade. Because they developed this eye salve, this eye medicine. And sent it and sold it all throughout the world. And we reference that within this letter. Jesus referenced all of those things. But we also notice that when Jesus is writing to those seven churches of Asia. Some of them got some commendation. Jesus had some good things to say to them. Not Laodicea. Laodicea had nothing good mentioned to them. And they said, Jesus says that within this letter that they were lukewarm and they were found disgusting to God. They they were neither hot nor cold. I wish you would pick one of them, he says. But because you are lukewarm, I will spit or vomit you out of my mouth. They were blind to their own spiritual condition. And Jesus, he threatens to discipline them if they don't repent. But he also offered them hope at the end of the letter. But it's surprising to us when we study this, when we, we just read this, that Jesus would rather have us be cold than lukewarm. Did you notice that? I wish that you were hot or cold. Hot are, the, are those who are fervent for the Lord. They, they love the Lord and they want to do everything for him. But, of course, cold is the complete opposite. Those who don't claim to be Christians and don't claim to have any spirituality. But lukewarm Christians here appear to be children of God. But they're complacent. They're, they're indifferent to their service to God. Well, what's bad about being lukewarm? What's bad is that they confuse the world as to how Christians should act. Uh, they, they act one way in front of uh, the congregation, in front of the church. But when they're uh, out in the world, they act another way. Uh, we see it with their language. We see it with the entertainment, the music that they listen to and watch. Uh, But many will say about the lukewarm Christian, you know, that's why I could never become a Christian. Uh, I see that guy, um, you know, at work, um, you know, saying all of this and and this and that. uh, But yet he wants me to come to his congregation. That's a lukewarm Christian. The, The church in Laodicea had everything they wanted. But was on the verge of losing their relationship with Jesus Christ. That we see here in Revelation chapter 3. And if the devil can turn us lukewarm. If he can turn us indifferent in our spiritual lives. He will have done his job. And so as Christians, we need to constantly, um, and churches, uh, check our spiritual temperature. You know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And that's something that we need to do. Uh, going to the scriptures and examining if our lives are living up to that standard that Jesus had. Well, the moral uh, of this, uh, conclusion of this lesson is do not let the devil have his way Again, he is like a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. It's been said about, uh, you know, maybe if you've lived in the area where mountain lions are, that in the wilderness there are specific tactics that you might use to protect yourself from mountain lions. And one individual said that he wears his sunglasses backwards on his head so that mountain lions believe you're watching them and so that they won't sneak up on you. And that's exactly what the Christian needs to do as well. We need to be vigilant, uh, vigilant. We need to be watchful. We need to be walking circumspectly, walking carefully, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we need to remember the purpose of life. As Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13, to fear God and keep his commandments. Because right? that, that's the duty of all man. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, Paul said, we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Are we doing those good works? The lesson for you this evening is that it's up to you, that we can't fall to the father of lies. Again, be vigilant, be watchful, walk circumspectly. He wants to keep the unsaved saved. He wants to take those who have obeyed the gospel and bring them back into the world. And he wants to render those within the congregation useless. And he wants to make them indifferent. And those are things that we need to watch for and to keep our lives in sync with God's Word. So, this evening, uh, if we can help you in any way as we offer the invitation, uh, we'd ask that you come forward now um, as we stand and sing this song of invitation.